Talkers. Welcome to Pop Curse, Episode 3. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. Pop Curse is the intersection of all things pop culture. It has been a minute, as they say, since the last episode of Pop Curse. Thanks for hanging in if you're subscribed and got the little surprise of this episode popping up. Uh, it was a busy summer. Uh, my 14th San Diego Comic-Con. I uh, moderated a panel there and... Uh, you know, general Comic-Con shenanigans, as we do. Also, my first time cosplaying. I dressed up as the Green Arrow. That would be TV's Green Arrow. I, at some point in the last year or so, went headfirst into the CW's DC universe, miniverse, the Arrowverse, I guess they call it. Uh, you know, it's I've been re-watching The Sopranos recently, and, I mean, there's been so much great television in the wake of The Sopranos, this, you know, prestige TV, everything from Mad Men to Breaking Bad, and, you know, all these greatest shows of all time. I, I love the uh, the Netflix Marvel mini universe, uh, especially Daredevil and Jessica Jones. But I I even like Iron Fist, which has been you know a bit maligned. And you know maybe I waited so long to watch it, and I'd heard so many bad things about it that my expectations were so low that I loved it. But nevertheless, I've I've liked all of those shows, including The Defenders. But my point is, what's fun to me about the CW DC comic shows? is there it, it's not prestige television. It's very comic booky. It's not campy. Uh, they're not stupid. They're they're well written, well acted, fun shows, and they're like comic books. They're not afraid of costumes. They're not afraid of aliens and multiverses and magical powers. Uh, now, granted, uh, it, you know it takes Arrow a little bit to sort of get there, um, and once it cracks it wide open, there's now you know there's Arrow, there's the Flash, which is phenomenal. Uh, there's Legends of Tomorrow. All of these shows are interconnected. There's Supergirl, which is kind of brilliantly connected in the sense that it, it takes place in a different universe, a parallel universe, but they, they are able to cross over, just like in the comics where there's a multiverse. Anyway, all those shows are on Netflix. Every show that I just mentioned, if you are a comic book fan, an action fan this guy Stephen Amell who plays Green Arrow Oliver Queen uh, is kind of the linchpin of all of those shows and the you know the guy that it started with he does almost all of his own stunts uh, parkour martial arts uh, if you're into any of that stuff it's fun to watch but anyway it's kind of turn your brain off TV in a good way sometimes you hear you know about popcorn movies or the sort of stuff where it's like oh I just want to turn my brain off I don't want to have to think and you know that doesn't have to mean you're watching something terrible. There are still good versions of turn your brain off kind of stuff. And yeah, the shows are a lot of fun. So anyway, uh, that was a, a big part of the reason uh, why Pop Curse, the podcast, has been a little bit dormant for the last couple months was Comic-Con. And I was also in Nashville for about a week. Uh, I went to Chicago Open Air. Uh, Demon Hunter, uh, one of the bands I manage, represent as a manager, uh, performed at Chicago Open Air with Ozzy Osbourne and a whole bunch of other great artists, Amon Amarth. We got to watch them from the side of the stage with their big dragon boat stage set and fire and people fighting with swords and whatnot. So yeah, looking forward to kind of kicking back into gear and getting Pop Curse the podcast sort of back up on its feet. And by the way, two months off from this podcast doesn't mean that I've taken two months off from podcasting. Quite the contrary, there are two other podcasts in the Pop Curse podcast network. Stick around until the end of this episode and I'm going to talk a little bit 
more about what's been going on with those. But let's get right into the main event for this episode. My little sit down with David Hasselhoff, the Hoff, Knight Rider, Baywatch. He has a new film called Killing Hasselhoff in which he plays David Hasselhoff. It's a story about a guy who is down on his luck, out of money, needs to come up with cash fast, and he's um, a member of a, a group of guys who have a celebrity death pool going, and he has David Hasselhoff. Uh, as, you know, that's he's going to make a bunch of money if David Hasselhoff kicks it, and he decides in order to get that money that he's going to kill Hasselhoff. Hence the title of the film, "Killing Hasselhoff." Uh, it's out now on video on demand, iTunes, all that sort of thing. What's interesting about this conversation was how candid. David Hasselhoff was in talking about sort of the movie making process and some of the frustrations with uh, creative decisions that get made and, you know, constraints due to money and that sort of thing. Anybody who knows me knows uh, what a huge fan of comedy I am. Uh, big fan of the celebrity roasts in particular. The Hasselhoff roast was a pretty great one. It was also the last appearance of Greg Giraldo, one of my favorite comedians who passed away shortly after that roast was taped. Um, Giraldo is kind of known you know, his, his crossover into, I guess, the mainstream world would be for those roasts because he would always kill at those and just dominate, just blow everyone off of the stage. And we're talking about a lot of great comedians who delivered a lot of uh, phenomenal sets at those things. Geraldo was still, hands down, uh, without question, the best. But he wasn't a, a roast comic. He wasn't an insult comic. If you watch, uh, there was this little tribute called Give It Up for Greg Giraldo that Comedy Central put together. And that's something that Jon Stewart in particular goes to some effort to make clear is that really, you know, Greg's own material that wasn't, you know, that he wasn't writing uh, for these roasts. He, he wasn't an insult comic. It was uh, very real, very transparent, very high energy, sort of manic, fast talking. It's so smart. And, and, and so even even when he, you know, brought out the sharpened knives you could just sense what a good and positive and decent person he was in there somewhere so anyway greg Geraldo, rest in peace it was nice to it was nice to talk to david hasselhoff about not only the roast but about sort of the inner workings of it and uh you know what it's like to be sort of you know what it's like to be the subject of the roast the guy in the center of the dais we also talked a little bit about his hopes and dreams for a Knight Rider reboot, which he envisions as a dark, edgy drama on Netflix uh, with the involvement of Guardians of the Galaxy director James Gunn and Robert Rodriguez. Who knows if uh, any of that's ever going to happen, but he did give me an update on that. So here it is, my interview with David Hasselhoff. This is Popkers. Peter, the guy who actually wrote Killing Hasselhoff, uh, he wrote this whole uh, first-person sort of essay about what it was like to, you know, write a script in 2007 and see it made and go through all those stages and arrive here. Wow. And I wanted to tell you a couple of things that he said here. Well, first of all, he said, uh, the film, of course, stars David Hasselhoff, who in all sincerity, I can safely say, is the coolest motherfucker on the planet. <laughs> so there's that. Um but kind of more importantly, he also talks about, uh, you know, as a note to other writers, you know, I first found it difficult to watch my script altered. It's something I initially wrote back in 2007 and had then went on to rewrite upwards of 40 times in the years that followed. The project is bigger than me, as it should be. 
Any writer who may be reading this needs to realize something prior to stepping into this tempting yet eternally frustrating industry. Your script will change. Mine did. It changed quite a bit. Um, but my script changed for the better. And then he goes on to write this whole thing about how, you know, movie making is a collaborative process and how he learned to kind of let go of that control freak nature and see that everyone else involved made it better and that it worked. So I was curious from your, you know, because you've been you know, a producer and you've been on so many different sides of this thing. Uh, right. Curious for your thoughts on that well, whole part of the process. When I got the script Killing Hasselhoff, I, I realized that, that the, the backstory of it was it was not written for me in the beginning. It was written for someone else, and a friend of mine. And um, there was no interest. And then when they attached me to it, um, and it was, the working title was kind of Celebrity Death Pool, because it's about a celebrity death pool. And, and a bunch of us, a bunch of people get together and they decide who's gonna die first, and they put money in, it's a college game, like 9,000 bucks. And if it's Lindsay, someone's got Lindsay Lohan, someone's got Hulk Hogan, someone's got David Hasselhoff, someone's got Gary Busey, whoever dies first, you win the pot. Yeah. Well, the pot now is at 500,000. We cast Ken Young, he comes in. Ken Young plays one of the characters, it's down on his luck, he needs to cash in on David Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff just won't die. He'll jump out of airplanes. He'll do everything. You cannot kill David Hasselhoff. Yeah. He says, well, I'm going to have to kill him. And I'm going to make it look like an accident. And then you have this great premise, like it's a madman world or the great race. Mm -hmm. And old school like I am. And I loved it. And um, I think Peter Hoare is probably one of the top 10 best writers on the planet right now. And, and he's just still undiscovered. And um, when we talked about his script changing, um, it it changed a lot. A lot of things changed. It, it, this movie actually changed me. It made me bitter and angry about Hollywood because yeah. I could not be as involved as I wanted to be involved. Um, we were bringing in, um, we brought in Ken Young for for two reasons. One, he was terrific. Mm -hmm. And then two, we knew that with him, we'd probably get some uh, theatrical distribution. Sure. So I said, okay. And then, but they said, well, he has to work on these certain dates. And I said, well, what do I do? I got a TV show in Sweden. I got a TV yeah. show in Denmark. I got, you know, several hundred thousand dollars committed. And I said, you know what? Forget it. Let's let him do the movie. Then, because of budget and because of osmosis and because of Hollywood, sometimes creatively, sometimes not creatively, sometimes just strictly because there's no money, it has to change. And it breaks your heart. Yeah. There's a total different beginning to this film that we had to cut out where the kids are all in school, in like grade school, and the principal dies and the one kid goes, yes! <laughs> yes! And they go, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. I mean, yes, yes. Yeah. And you got just won $80, you know? And, and it's really funny. It sets it up that these kids have been whacked out before they even got out of grade school. Yeah. And that was it, had to cut it, because, you know, and even Ashok Armitage from Hyde Park said, I love this scene. I don't want to cut it, but I have to, you know? Because there's no money. We can't hire, we can't afford to pay kids and teachers and school. And yeah. So anyway, it yeah. changes. Yeah. And... It and makes you have to figure out how to still make it what you want it to be. You have to figure while adapting out. to that. Yeah. You know what? That's, you, that's just called life. You know. Yeah. You have to figure out. Once you figure out what I figured out, that life isn't fair. 
<laughs> and you have, who cares? Yeah. That, you know, you're going to get a horrible, terrible, horrible thing is going to happen to you. And then something worse will happen. <laughs> and then you just go, okay, you know, well, yeah. you know, and you know, what is this? God, why me? Give me a break, you know? Why am I sitting here talking about this film and why am I not in a wheelchair or why am I not dead right. from cystic fibrosis? Right. So many We're other freaking blessed. Yeah. You know, and if you know you people you gotta get over yourself, laugh about it. Why did everybody exploit me? They exploited me the same way they exploited Hulk Hogan because it sells tickets, because it sells newspapers. So I figured out instead of being angry about it, realize they're just selling papers. They're just calling you to they want to interview because Selling tickets to watch TV yeah. shows. And I said, okay, how do I win at that game? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, the way I win at that game is to be more successful and do a series called Hoff the Record, yeah. which I have and won an international Emmy, address those issues that really upset me for a while yeah. and make fun of them. Yeah. But then, as an actor and as David Hasselhoff in the Hoff the Record, tell how I really feel. And then people get a chance to say, wait a second, he really is a human being, because we're all just... And when you go head, head first right into, you know, the uh, embracing some of the satire and everything, I think that disarms people and it creates a level of trust with the audience to then you can get across the point that you really wanted to make. Well... You know, yeah, it works. I, you know, that's a really intelligent way of saying it, and I, I never looked at it other than, than the fact that it's... That's the truth. Yeah. It's, you know, and I can tell the truth. And if I have to tell the truth through the media, through Hoff the Record or Killing Hasselhoff, you know, I can tell the truth. You know, it's Killing Hasselhoff is a send-up of Hollywood. It's a send-up of stupid celebrity death pools. Yeah. It's a send-up of David Hasselhoff thinking he's better looking than he is, thinking he's cooler than he is. You know, the whole thing is just one big... Well, and I think even that it, it gets into celebrity culture and tabloid culture and sort sure. of the the way that we uh, can depersonalize other human beings. As yeah, the, and the how Ken Young them. in the show is suddenly made out to be a child pervert and he's got coke all over his face and he doesn't really have, none of this happened. Yeah. And he's trying to explain it to his wife. I've been there where I've said, none of this, so I haven't did any, I didn't do anything. I just got hammered in my house and they filmed it, you know, and, and, and yeah. who released it? Oh. Well, I know who released it, yeah. and I and and am I going to deal with that? No. Why? Because it sells the tickets. So let's put that in off the record mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and talk about it, and and then say what I really wanted to say. And it was the greatest day of my life that I was able to say that, and to be honest, and say maybe I'll go home tomorrow night and get hammered <laughs> again, and maybe I'll have more beers and more hamburgers. You know why? Because it's at home, and you can't yeah. film it. Yeah, exactly. It's a private moment. Yeah. Right? That's the whole point. It's a private moment. And if we're not allowed to have private moments in our, in our lives, you might as well give, you know, there's nothing left. So, that's, and it's also part of show business. Yeah. So you got to realize that, hey, if, if this, this kid happens, this <laughs> shit happens, yeah. you have to either get angry and get pissed and abuse yourself or figure out a way <laughs> to make it work for you. Make art out of it. I mean, yeah, that's what all the great not? artists do. Sure. You so know, take the pain so and misery of life and yeah. the comedy of it. I, I, you know, that's a great segue, too, because I am, uh, you know, there's great comedians in this film, like Jim Jeffries and yeah. Reese Darby. And, um, I am a huge fan of comedy in general, 
and uh, also specifically the roasts. Yeah. And I think the Comedy Central roast that you did uh, was 2010. Yeah, 2010. Um, one of the best. Thank you. And, and I'm, I'm very fascinated by, and you've, and you've kind of jumped right into it, so I'm, I'm very fascinated by the inner workings of those. And I know the roast that you were on, um, you know, the late Greg Giraldo is one of my favorite comedians. He died ever. two weeks after that. Yeah, right after Awful. that. On to the man of the happy hour. One more hand for the Hoff, everybody, huh? David Hasselhoff, what a legend. Hasselhoff's, Hasselhoff's sitting on a lifeguard chair, because that's what you're most known for. I guess when we roasted Pam, she should have been sitting on a dick. We're... <laughs> that, is, that is quite a tuxedo. You look like Adam Lambert's prom date. You're, you're huge in Europe. You're even knighted by the Queen of England. She dubbed you cirrhosis of liver. <laughs> Hasselhoff, have you, have you ever not been drunk? You used to have a car that started when you talked to it. Now you have a car that won't start when you blow into it. <laughs> You're such a drunk. When alcohol does its taxes, it lists you as a dependent. starred in Jekyll and Hyde on Broadway. Give him a round of applause for that. It's excellent acting. You, you played a guy, you played a normal guy who drinks something and then turns into a raging, abusive asshole. What impressive range. Maybe, maybe for your next big leap, you can go out for the part of washed up, drunken cheeseburger eater. Hustle off, you drunk fuck. You drink a lot, right? Your liver is so shriveled, black, and dead, if you put your ear to your side, you can hear it go, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> your, your liver. Hassel, <laughs> uh, you're a good man. You're a good dad. Congratulations on being honored here tonight. I know you're taking a lot of shit, but, uh, but you're not going to remember any of it. Let's face it. It's what you Thanks. And, and it was, and also uh, Anthony Jeselnik, who's one of my favorite stand-ups. I've, yeah. I've seen him here in LA probably ten times. Right. Um, he was a writer on yours, right. and uh, he he got on the very next one when they actually put him on, oh, based okay. on the strength of his material on yours. Oh, really? Um, so, so I'm just really curious if you could tell me about the the inner workings of that and behind <laughs> the scenes and how it all. Well, Greg and Geraldo, they were, he was apologizing. They were all apologizing yeah. to me. We love you, Knight Rider, and, and we're going to be horrible. I said, don't be horrible. Yeah. Don't, do, I mean, be ten times as horrible as you think you are. I can take it. So yeah. the only person who brings me down is me. It's got to be brutal. Yeah. And the first joke was so brutal. <laughs> I was sitting in the chair, and I was reading. You're like, I'm ready, wait. Yeah, I was reading, I was reading the, the teleprompter. So you're you the guy. See it coming. I, I can see it coming. Going, <laughs> he's not there. She's not going to say that, yeah. and she did. And I went, and the audience laughed. And I went, game on. Yeah, let's here we go. go. And then you know, and all I all Just I kept thinking the of the whole time, yeah, watching the train coming <laughs> to my part because they were so oh, right. effing good. Revenge. I was like, <laughs> I have better be good. I gotta be good. Yeah. I gotta be better than all these guys. I gotta have a comeback. And luckily for me that night, I was in the zone, so yeah. I... And Jerry Springer, even though we've worked together, I've only seen your talk show one time. It was nothing more than skeevy white trash going at it. Now, wait a minute, that was Pam's sex tape. <laughs> and writing that sort of, uh, that climax where, you know, the, the roasty gets to get up and 
have right. their have their say. What was the process like uh, putting those jokes together and figuring out what would work? And a lot of the the roast uh, roasties, you you know some, you don't know some. Uh, the writers uh, will present stuff to you, and I'll say, you know, don't go there. You can't touch my kids, and the kids are right. like, oh, dad, we love this. They called us hookers. We love that. <laughs> you know. They really went after Hulk Hogan's daughter. Oh my God! Yeah, everyone has their their off. I know. I guess with Charlie Sheen, uh, it, nothing was off limits except the mom. Well, Pamela um, Anderson, and she was she wasn't happy that night, you know. Oh and I just, sure. I mean, because they, you know, they were really, especially brutal to her. And then and then she and what she was upset about was it wasn't coming from the people who were saying the part. It was coming from the writers. So they, yeah. the writers, the people, the roasties, were actually reading what someone else wrote. Sure. And that is what upset her because she had a lot of respect for the, the girls or whoever was saying this joke about her. Right. So she like, would say, they why? Write that joke even? Yeah, yeah. And then, then she, then the other person who was doing that joke said, she, "She's never going to talk to me again." And I said, "She's going to kill you." <laughs> you know, and then Pamela starts to walk off, and I'm saying, "Come on, you and I are making more money than anybody on the show. So calm down, you know." And I, you know, you're helping yeah. me now, and I helped you. She goes, "Okay, okay." Yeah. Go kill the Adana, you know. And 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 later on, it was you know they all became friends, and they yeah. all apologized. And she, and she did. She's done more of them too, right? Yeah, I think there was yeah, even one yeah. That, you, get, you know, you get, you get in, in the moment. It's so unbelievably, whew, yeah, that you just gotta gotta take it. Or yeah. you, you know, or you walk. So, but that's what's good about it. It's because yeah. it shocks the audience. You know, oh my God. You know, and it's disarming. Yeah. And, so, and, and I, I, you know, it's funny is uh, talking about the things off limits and whatnot. Um, so Jezelnik, who wrote on yours and then uh, performed on the Trump roast, which was right after, I heard an interview with him where he said that uh, with Trump, the only thing that was off limits. You could joke about him wanting to sleep with his daughter. You could joke about his hair. You could do all this stuff. The only thing that was off limits is you couldn't make any jokes that implied that he's less rich than he says he is. <laughs> just like that was that's the line you couldn't cross, really. Everything that's, else was fine. <laughs> so obviously, yeah. this sounds like Trump wanted everyone to think he's incredibly rich. You know? Yeah, like that. You that know, was like the you most can't thing. you can't download that. You know, yeah. downplay that. But you know, I the. Uh, you know, back to what you asked me about Peter Hoare. Yeah. It's been a long process um, getting this movie made and getting it out. Mm -hmm. And it's changed us a lot to the point where it is a collaborative thing, whether it's money or whether it's distribution or whether it's where it's going to air, what is the audience. And that sometimes is really disheartening because it's not nearly as funny as picking up a book and reading it because it's so freaking funny. Yeah. But we had to cut. I mean, there was a bunch. You, you should f ask Peter Hoare to send you the original script and you'll probably call me up and say, oh, my God, why didn't you do this scene, this right, scene, this sure. scene? There's like four or five other scenarios that we had to cut out because it would have made the movie a $30 million budget. Yeah. We didn't have the money. And um, so in the end... We, um, in the end, we, we or, or me, decided that I know how we can make this a better picture, and so we just added voiceover, mm. and and Ken Young really came through on voiceover, like, like Blade Runner. 
and made himself <laughs> Blade Runner made it was a better yeah, film with and made him better because it explained yeah. why he's such a jerk in the movie and why he did all this and it made him more sympathetic and um, it's what was missing in the in the original cuts mm. and then it, it worked and I think that uh, you know the, the the response that I'm getting. It's just so nice because yeah. I, I didn't, you know, and, and then my fiance says, do you think, she's in Wales, she says, you think the, the, the reporters are telling the truth? <laughs> I said, I don't know. <laughs> I well, said, I don't know, but at least they're not butchering it. Well, well, I mean, you know, when the, the ones that asked for 20 minutes, you know, we, I had to have liked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to want to talk to you. Yeah. No, I have to be here. Um, I wanted to ask you also while I have you here, because uh, you, you've been talking about this a little bit. Uh, as a, I mean, I grew up, you know, obviously Knight Rider was on TV. Um, I was reading comic books. It's con- nice convergence of worlds here, right. you're, you and James Gunn. And, of course, I think you don't get enough credit. Uh, the, the current slate of the Marvel Universe and what huge, uh, you know, business there is around it. I mean, the original Nick Fury. Yeah. I mean, there, were, there were multiple attempts to get these great characters on the screen and all kinds of permutations over the years of varying degrees of quality and success. Yeah. And that was, I mean, such a crucial character. He's been the linchpin of this whole movie world that they built around it. And it's yeah. like, you, you, were well, the guy, it, you were the guy that, you know, Stan Lee showed up for yours, right? Stan Lee showed up for mine and he said, Hasselhoff's the consummate Nick Fury. And I studied Nick Fury. I went to all the comic book stores and I realized who he was and I talked to everybody I could, you know, about Nick Fury. And I developed the way he talked and the, the, the patch and... Yeah. and and I liked Nick Fury because he was a guy like John Wayne, and he and I and the Stogie. and the line was so great. He had a cigar in his mouth, and the guy says, "Well, Fury, are you surprised to see me?" He goes, "Nope. Guys like you tend to cling to the bowl no matter how many times you flush." <laughs> and I thought, "Oh my yeah. God, is that the greatest line ever? I'm going to yeah. say it to every agent I've ever met." You know, You're right? And you know, we've all known a lot of guys like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so. Um, and it was on Fox, and it did okay, but it was funny, and it was written by David Goyer, who wrote Spider-Man. Oh, yeah, sure. So it was the very beginning that. of Marvel on television, and now it's the billion-dollar, zillion-dollar business. And they we couldn't have gotten there without all this. Samuel Jackson now is playing Nick Fury, yeah. and I'm watching it, and I'm going like this, and coming up, the Nick Fury, I'm going, well, I guess it wasn't me. <laughs> and that's all, I just walked out going... You know, it's Hollywood. Yeah. And, of course, I love Samuel Jackson anyway, but it did not. And Stanley, the, there's a tribute to Stanley, August 22nd. It's going to be in theaters, live streamed, and they're going to play a scene from Nick Fury. Nice. And they're going to talk about how long I've known him. Because nice. I've known him since 1998. Wow. And uh, he is when we did that. And he played a cameo in it, and he played a cameo in the last video that's now number one on the uh, internet called Guardians Inferno, yeah. featuring Hasselhoff. So yeah. he's in that. At the very end of the video, I say, we are Groot. You know? And then his <laughs> face coming. It's just yeah. such an honor to be in the same anywhere universe with Stan Lee of because course. he's a guy that we all want to be. I mean, he's... Him and Jack about Kirby, people, they, they changed the world. I mean, he's in his 90s, and he's still... I just saw him at a Comic-Con yeah. with a huge line, signing autographs. Why? You know? And he's just such a, uh, such an inspiration. 
And when I saw him on the set when we were doing Guardians Inferno video, David! And he jumps out and he goes, <laughs> and he goes, man, you're good looking. And I said, thanks. Stan, he goes, no, I was talking about your girlfriend. <laughs> That's and he goes, too. And he's I said, bam, yeah. he got me. Yeah. You know, I said, now that is, you know, that's it. That, that's yeah. old school right away. Well, Tony's about to kick me out of here. So I just, I just want to ask real quick, how close are we to making the Knight Rider thing a reality? David I'm not Gunn really. producing and. You know, James Gunn is, uh, uh, James Gunn. I, I don't have the guts to say, Hey, James, let's do this movie. Uh, he seems put me in as Zardu Hasselfrau yeah. in the next Guardians. I won't do that. I won't do it. I just won't. I'll never do it. I'll wait. And if it happens, it happens. Knight Rider, I mentioned it to him. I said I was at El Rey talking to Rodriguez, saying Knight Rider comes back. He's got a vengeance. He's pissed off. You know, he, it's it's the dark. And and next two or three months later, I get a call. I'm saying, let's have some lunch. And we and and. and I can't get this out of my head. Someone says that about the conversation that we had. And then when we go to make the uh, release, which was last week of the video, he says, well, I'm not doing Knight Rider. I can't, I can't do the, the rights are with this company. I won't work with, I, no, I am not doing it. And then uh, I just said, but I, you know, and we just really wanted to do it, you know, dark and put it on Netflix. And, and I'm going, well, Gee, I wonder where that idea came from. And then I, was, I didn't say anything. Sure. And then I said, you know, um, they don't own the movie rights. They don't. They, they, the company you're talking about owns the movie rights, but they don't own mm. the TV rights. And he goes, and his, but takes out his phone, and now, game on. And that's how you do the Netflix. And series. so now I'm. Yeah. I've already spoken to them. I've spoken to Netflix, and I've spoken to Universal, and we'll see. And if it happens, you'll probably hear me scream all the way from Calablasas, because <laughs> that's uh, it's my dream as well. I've got something else for you here. Uh, are you a fan of the movie Tombstone? I am. It's one of my favorite westerns of all time. I love westerns. Uh, it's certainly one of the better westerns of the 90s. Val Kilmer, Doc Holliday, Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp, Michael Bean as Johnny Ringo, the late, great Powers Booth as Curly Bill, leader of the Cowboys gang. And of course, Bill Paxton, another great actor, weird science, frailty, oh, so many, so many movies, uh, near dark. Another great actor that we've lost in the last year or two. Sometime around the time that Powers Booth passed away, uh, sent me back to rewatch Tombstone for the millionth time. And that sent me down the rabbit hole of reading up on all these various facts and anecdotes and trivia about Tombstone. So I put together this little thing that uh, hopefully you'll like listening to. These are 10 things you never knew about the movie Tombstone. It's one of the most beloved westerns of the modern era. Tombstone boasts one of the most formidable macho ensembles imaginable. Kurt Russell, Sam Elliott, Bill Paxton, Powers Booth, Michael Bean, as well as smaller roles from Michael Rooker, Thomas Hayden Church, Stephen Lang, Billy Zane, Jason Priestley, Billy Bob Thornton, and Terry O'Quinn. So let's get into it, shall we? Number one, the movie is missing a few herps. 
The heroic ensemble at the center of Tombstone includes Wyatt Earp, played by Kurt Russell, and his brothers, Virgil, played with typical awesome gruffness by Sam Elliott, and Morgan, played by the late Bill Paxton, in all of his boyish but badass glory. But there were actually nine siblings in total. Sisters Martha, Virginia, and Adelia, half-brother Newton, eldest brother James, and youngest brother Warren Earp. James, a professional gambler, saloon keeper, and union veteran, was actually in Tombstone during the shootout at the OK Corral, but he was believed to be sitting at home eating lunch. Warren wasn't in town for the gunfight, but was deputized by Wyatt, joining him, Doc Holliday, Turkey Creek Jack Johnson, and Sherman McMaster on the Earp Vendetta ride after Morgan's murder. Number two, Kurt Russell was Tombstone's real director. The late Kevin Jari had written the Oscar-winning Civil War drama Glory and was set to make his directorial debut on Tombstone from his own script. But his inexperience and religious adherence to what was probably an overly long shooting script caused him to fall behind early on after wrapping only the film's Charlton Heston scenes. On the advice of Sylvester Stallone, who apparently worked on Rambo First Blood Part II the same way, Russell hired director George Cosmatos to be his on-set yes-man, while more or less secretly directing Tombstone himself. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. Russell sacrificed hours of sleep and several pages of his own character's dialogue to make it all work, promising Cosmatos he wouldn't reveal their secret, so long as the director was alive, though he did speak with Entertainment Weekly about the situation a bit in 1993. But it wasn't until 2013, almost 10 years after Cosmatos passed away, that Russell finally revealed all in a candid, in-depth, and fascinating interview with the esteemed and historically focused True West magazine. Kilmer more or less backed up his co-star's version of events in a 2017 post, writing in part, I'll be clear, Kurt is solely responsible for Tombstone's success, no question. Number three, Wyatt Earp really waded into a creek and shot Curly Bill. Get some, boy. It's one of the movie's most cinematic moments, a super-powered and supernatural-feeling showdown where Wyatt Earp charges directly into Curly Bill's line of fire. Somehow, all of the shots fired by Bill miss the famous lawman, just before he empties his double-barreled shotgun into the dumbfounded leader of the Cowboys. Did you ever see anything like that before? Hell, I ain't never even heard of anything like that. One of the Cowboys, Johnny Barnes, survived the gunfight in real life, dying from his injuries a short while later in a nearby farmhouse. Before he passed, he related the story of Wyatt Earp's near-miraculous feat, portrayed in the film exactly as he described. Number four, Willem Dafoe nearly played Doc Holliday. I'm your huckleberry. It's crazy to imagine anyone other than Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday, but Willem Dafoe was reportedly the first choice for the role. It's even crazier to imagine that the lead role in a Martin Scorsese film would sour a studio on an actor. But apparently, the decision makers balked at hiring Defoe because of the controversy surrounding The Last Temptation of Christ some five years earlier. If the same reports are to be believed, Mickey Rourke turned down the role of Johnny Ringo. I didn't think you had it in you. Rourke did later star in Danny Trejo's direct-to-DVD horror western, Dead in Tombstone, as Lucifer. Number five. Doc Holliday really said, you're a daisy if you do. In fact, all of the lines spoken by the actors during the pivotal scene at the OK Corral are said to be historically accurate, based on different historical sources, like newspaper reports from Tombstone that chronicled the famous shootout. But did Doc ever say, I'm your huckleberry? For that matter, did Val Kilmer even say it? This is a hotly debated topic online. According to True West, 
The phrase, I'm your Huckleberry, is attributed to Doc in the 1928 book Tombstone by Walter Noble Burns, which was based in part on interviews with old-timers from the area. True West and other sources also contend I'm your Huckleberry is an old southern phrase meaning basically, if you want to fight, I'm your man. Or even more patronizingly, if you want to dance, I'll dance with you. Doc Holliday was born in Georgia, and Kilmer certainly gave him a southern aristocrat's charms. Isn't that a daisy? Then there are those who say the line is actually, I'm your hucklebearer, arguing that a huckle was a word for the handles on a casket, making a hucklebearer a pallbearer. That would make the line, I'm your hucklebearer, pretty sinister. But we've gone to the source material. We took a look at the screenplay, a fourth draft dated March 15th, 1993 to be exact, and it most certainly says, Huckleberry. Number six, Doc Holliday's finger-walking trick is a Val Kilmer staple. The way Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday rolls a coin across his knuckles isn't just super cool. It's something of a signature move for the actor, going all the way back to the 80s. Eagle-eyed viewers will be rewarded with the discovery of similar finger-walking maneuvers throughout Kilmer's pre-Tombstone filmography. In Real Genius, it's a pair of quarters. In Top Gun, a pen. Number seven. There's a cool connection between Doc Holliday and Batman. Val Kilmer was born on December 31st, 1959. That same year, the late Adam West played gunslinger Doc Holliday in not one, not two, but three different episodes of three different TV westerns, Colt 45, Sugarfoot, and Lawman. John Henry Holliday. Beginning in 1966, West starred in the role that would come to define him as Gotham City's Cape Crusader. 30 years later, Val Kilmer put on the cape and cowl for Batman Forever. How did Kilmer come to accept the mantle of the Bat? After Batman and Batman Returns star Michael Keaton abdicated from the role, Batman Forever director Joel Schumacher was impressed by Kilmer's performance in Tombstone as Doc Holliday. Number 8. And a sad connection between Doc Holliday and Frederick Chopin. Doc Holliday says so many cool things in Tombstone that even his more subtle witticisms made their way onto t-shirts, patches, and memes. The profanity-laced line about Frederick Chopin, which Doc says to Billy Clanton, Thomas Hayden Church, is loaded with a richer, if profoundly sad, deeper meaning. You know, Frederick Chopin. You see, both Doc and the composer whose music Doc plays are believed to have died from the same cause, tuberculosis. This famous quote from Chopin is definitely something it's easy to imagine being uttered by Kilmer in Tombstone. I wish I could throw off the thoughts which poison my happiness, but I take a kind of pleasure in indulging them. Frederick Chopin died in 1849, two years before Doc Holliday was born. Number 9. Tombstone contains multiple nods to Hollywood westerns. The filmmakers behind Tombstone paid attention to historical accuracy and even put Wyatt Earp's real-life fifth cousin in the movie in the role of Billy Claiborne. The nods to Hollywood westerns were sewn into the Tombstone fabric with equal reverence. For starters, there's the film's narrator, screen legend Robert Mitchum. The Tombstone cast also includes veteran Western actors Harry Carey Jr., Buck Taylor from TV's Gunsmoke, and of course, Charlton Heston. They want him, they gotta come over us first. Incidentally, Paula Malcolmson and the late Powers Booth would both go on to star in HBO's critically acclaimed Western series, Deadwood. Number 10. This super cool Tombstone is real, basically. There's a headstone visible in an early scene with an epitaph so cool it seems ripped straight from a plastic grave marker found in Halloween novelty shops. Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. But this isn't just movie magic. It's a real artifact from the Old West. 
There's actually a headstone in a Tombstone, Arizona cemetery that actually says that. However, that's not the one we actually see in the film. Producers filmed some of the movie on location at Knott's Berry Farm Theme Park in Southern California, where among other attractions, a replica of the headstone in question sits in the park's Wild West area. You know, somewhere there's a bunch of footage in Kurt Russell's possession just waiting for an ultimate edition. But until then, we'll just have to keep quoting the version of Tombstone that we already have and we already so dearly love. You tell them I'm coming! And hell's coming with me, you hear? That about does it for this episode of Pop Curse. I want to let you know that everything that you've heard on this episode today, the interview with David Hasselhoff, the 10 things you never knew about Tombstone, both of those are available to watch at movieweb.com and on the MovieWeb YouTube channel. Pop Curse with Ryan J. Downey is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. I want to tell you about two other podcasts. Speak and Destroy is a Metallica-themed podcast about all things Metallica. If you look for Speak and Destroy on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find episodes featuring in-depth interviews with M. Shadows of Avenged Sevenfold, author Mark Eglinton, Blasco, bassist for Ozzy Osbourne and former bassist for Rob Zombie, Rob Halford, the Metal God, Rob Flynn of Machine Head. The other podcast I want to mention is called No Prize from God. Conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. Episodes that are up now include Maddie Mullins of Memphis Mayfire, Jesse Leach of Killswitch Engage, Dwid Hellion of the band Integrity, and Satir Wangraven of Satyricon. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Please, if you get a moment, like and rate this podcast. Leave a review. Reviews help raise the visibility of the podcast overall, which means more people can discover it. And we like that, right? You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, on Instagram at SuperheroHQ, and you can find Pop Curse on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey. (laughs) 